Hello, and welcome to Queer as Fiction, where we talk about queer historical media. I'm Jason. And I'm Eli. And today we're talking about Jenny Livingston's 1990 documentary, Paris is Burning. Before we start, we have a few content warnings for this episode. This episode contains mentions of racism, transphobia, homophobia, the AIDS epidemic, murder, and family rejection. It also contains the use of outdated language to refer to both queer people and people of colour, in quotes. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, please feel free to check out one of our other episodes. So I wanted to start this episode by explaining what is Paris is Burning, because I feel like a lot of our older listeners probably have a pretty good understanding of this documentary, but some of our younger listeners listeners may not have seen it. I certainly hadn't, and had you seen it before we researched this episode, Eli? No, but I had a pirated version of it on my hard drive for like a decade. <laughs> I love queer things and have ADHD. <laughs> Reasonable. So I was aware of it, but I had not actually seen it. Yeah, I think I'd heard the name, but mm-hmm. didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. So Paris is Burning is a documentary about the ball culture scene of New York in the 1980s prominently featuring the African-American and Latin American members of that community, many of whom are gay and or trans. It documents how their lives intersect with the balls, the form the balls take, and contains several interviews where participants explain concepts such as shade, realness, reading, and legendary. Words that may be familiar to a modern audience given how they are propagated in popular drag culture. Yeah, on TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) The documentary features no narration and very little dialogue from the interviewer, white lesbian filmmaker Jenny Livingston. Prominent members of several houses in the scene were featured, including Pepper LaBeja, Dorian Corey, Angie Extravaganza, and Willie Ninja. I'll make a note here on pronouns. While several of the performers featured in Paris is Burning are unambiguously trans women, and so I'm going to use she, her pronouns for them where I don't have specific evidence... I do want to note that Pepe Labeja describes herself in the documentary as not being a woman, not understanding the experience of womanhood, and being uninterested in a sex change. However, her 2003 obituary in the New York Times describes her as preferring feminine pronouns, so I'm going with that as the more recent source compared to this documentary, which was filmed in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So having talked about what Paris is Burning is, I want to first go into kind of how it was made. So as described by academic Lucas Hildebrand in his 2013 book, Queer Film Classics Paris is Burning, which was a major source when I was researching this episode, Livingston was taking a film production class at New York University when she observed three young men voguing in Washington Square Park. After asking what they were doing, she was invited to an upcoming ball and soon thereafter began documenting the scene via black and white photographs and audio interviews, which were kind of the mediums in which she worked at the time. She wasn't really a documentary filmmaker. This was her first feature and she's since gone on to make several more films. but Which are obviously less notable, I guess, because I don't know what they are. Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty wild. Yeah. Are they on, like, queer things? Yeah, I believe so. I think there's, like, queer and feminist um, themes to many of her films. So, yeah, it was only later that she began filming the balls and coming up with the idea of turning this into a documentary. Mm -hmm. The film took seven years to make, in no small part due to the struggles Livingston had funding its production. She initially intended it to be a purely observational documentary, just kind of following the lives of the queens involved in the scene but lacked the funding to shoot the endless hours of footage that would be required for such a production. Mm. I'm not really an expert on how documentary films are made, Yeah, but I think they filmed something like 70 or 80 hours of footage as it is, so like, wow, that must have been like yeah. a lot of footage that we were required for something without the kind of cutaways to interviews. Mm. Yeah, it is interesting to think about funding a project like this in a like post the iPhone world <laughs> because there's like a very like obviously useless part of my brain that's like, I just gotta film it. Like where's all the money going? Yeah. And it's yeah. like Eli. It's interesting she talks about the various ways in which the film was funded and it was funded by a bunch of different organizations. Mm. I think it's something like 13 Mm. different organizations contributed funding, including the BBC. Mm -hmm. And she's talked in interviews about how, you know, it's the late 80s. You can't just show someone from the BBC your footage. You have to fly someone out from England. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And show them a physical film reel. So is that indicative of a certain level of, like, promise this project was seen to have if she was able to show it to someone like that? Or did this happen quite routinely? It was just logistically difficult. 
Yeah, I think it was just logistically okay. difficult. Okay. Yeah. So instead of a purely observational documentary, the earlier interviews that she'd recorded were brought back and more interviews were conducted. Most notably, interviews conducted in 1989 brought a sense of narrative to the film by depicting the commercial success of Willy Ninja, as well as the tragic murder of Venus Extravaganza, a young star in the ball scene who features prominently throughout the documentary. Livingston herself describes the filmmaking process as follows. Certainly the people I filmed worked with me in part because I represented a chance to speak out, to be in front of a camera, to show off. I consider Paris is Burning a collaboration on the deepest level. The people who we filmed are articulate, funny, and poised. While the editor and I made coherent form of all that we shot, the documentary was truly written by the ball people themselves. I use that quote because questions of narrative agency, consent, mm. and understanding of the nature of the documentary's production became deeply controversial upon the film's release and will form a part of our later discussion. But before we get into that, I wanted to do a bit of background about the history of ball culture and sort of how we arrived at New York in the 1980s mm. where Jenny Livingston discovers the ball scene. Mm-hmm. I know that the ball scene like predates the 1980s by some vague amount, which maybe you're about to tell me. Mm. But I think it's because of that that I actually, before I saw this, had the impression that this was set like a few decades earlier. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's interesting. So yeah, Paris is Burning presents a very particular image of ball culture that's a snapshot in time, in place, and also in focus. So I wanted to provide a bit more of a broader overview. This will not be in any way comprehensive. There's probably an entire season of podcast content that could be made about the history of the ball scene. Mm. But I wanted to address two points in particular, its longevity and its participants. Without context, it would be easy to come out of Paris's burning, believing that ball culture is, as of 1990 when the film was released, maybe around 20 years old, dominated by people of colour, and formed almost entirely of cis gay men and trans women. I feel like that's probably a pretty accurate summary of what we get in Paris's burning. I really don't know what I would have said about the impression of the longevity of the scene that we see in the film, but apart from that, like, yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, well, I'm just going by the like the only real sense of the history we mm-hmm. get is from Dorian Corey, mm-hmm. who talks about what it was like 20 years ago, Yeah, um, but doesn't really talk about what it was like before she was around. Mm. Yeah, but I feel like this film is so like lacking in structure or context in a lot of ways that if you were trying to figure that out from that, you wouldn't be like, yeah, I think this has been around for 20 years. You'd be like, it's been around for at least 20 years. Yeah. Uh. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I generally think that's a fair assessment. So in reality, the history of drag balls in the US stretches back to at least the late 19th century with newspaper clippings about New York's Hamilton Lodge Ball referring to the annual event being held for the 58th time in 1926. Mm. So doing some quick math, that takes us back to at least as far as 1868, and there's no real reason to think that Hamilton Lodge Ball was the first of its kind in the US. Mm. Oh, that's so cool. I love especially not only had it been going on for that long, but that it was like an annual recurring event. Yeah. Like that just makes it seem so much more entrenched than just balls of that kind having been around for that long in general would. Yeah, I was really surprised when I found that and, you know, found, like, there was something that will be in our source document, I can't remember the exact website, but it had, like, a bunch of images of newspaper clippings. And there were, like, four or five different newspaper reports over the Mm. course of, like, 1926 through to 1928 talking about these balls. These events featured trans-feminine and trans-masculine people and were noted in the articles to be racially integrated. The New York Age notes that although Hamilton Lodge is a coloured organisation, there were many white people present, and lists the race of the winners, two of the three were white. This Mm. dissonance between a scene where people of colour were at the core of organisation but where white people dominated competitions resurfaces 40 years later in the 1960s, after a time between the 30s and 50s where, from what I can tell, the ball scene was less prominent due to a combination of the Great Depression, conservative backlash, and probably World War II. That is interesting, because I really could have seen World War II having the opposite effect just as much. Yeah, and I mean, there seems to be a lot less information about mm-hmm. the ball scene during that time, but that's not to say that there weren't yeah, sure. yeah. active ball scenes occurring in various cities. Mm. I guess it would be the sort of thing where even if the ball scene declined, other kinds of queer community events 
would have been mm. increased and that's an interesting thing to think about yeah yeah and i mean also there probably would have been more kind of informal mm. events i guess like especially if you think about like people going to different states to join the military yeah and things like that yeah i mean certainly like most of what i know about world war Two queer experiences in american cities is from men all of a sudden just having so many cruising opportunities. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it seems like, yeah, it was like a very transient population, which I guess doesn't lend itself to a kind of like annual sort of institution mm. that takes like effort and resources like a ball. So yeah, then we get to the 1960s. As seen in Frank Simon's 1968 documentary, The Queen, which centered on the 1967 Miss All-America Camp Beauty Contest. Okay. <laughs> so contestant Crystal LeBeja accused the white judges of the contest of having rigged it against her as a result of her race. You can see, for example, that she's artificially lightened her skin in order to participate, and the competition centered on swimsuit modeling, which I feel in the 1960s US carries some kind of racial connotations. Mm -hmm. If you want to learn more about this documentary, I recommend Matt Baum's video on the subject, which is just on YouTube. I'll link that in the source post for this episode on our website, queerasfact.com. So this experience led directly to Crystal pioneering the more familial house scene depicted in Paris is Burning. What we saw in The Queen was more individuals coming together mm. and a much more kind of competitive environment. Okay. She founded House Labasia in 1972 alongside fellow Harlem drag queen Lottie and hosted a ball which only allowed entry from black queens. Oh, cool. Yeah. So this brings us all the way back to the 1980s ball scene into which Jenny Livingston stepped to make Paris is Burning. But beyond the lack of historical context, the documentary provides an incomplete picture of the scene as it existed in the 80s, and this is where we start to get into the response to its release in 1990. So, as stated in the beginning, the film was finally released in 1990. For a documentary about a niche community, it received an impressive amount of attention, grossing $4 million from a budget of $500,000. The film won multiple awards, including the prestigious Grand Jury Prize documentary at the 1991 Sundance Film Festival, so it was pretty well regarded. It was praised by national newspapers, there's TV footage of the director and the stars being interviewed, and alongside the release of Madonna's song Vogue in the same year, contributed to a significant mainstreaming of drag, ball culture, and the language used in that community. So there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of the mainstream response. In terms of digging a bit deeper, I first want to talk about the community response, and by that I mean like the people who appeared in the movie mm -hmm. itself. Okay, good, yeah. Which was definitely mixed. Hmm. <laughs> We'll get into the accusations of exploitation and cultural voyeurism that were sent Livingston's way, but I want to make it clear that most of the criticism from the ball community itself was over the matter of payment for those who were featured, not really as much any of the content in the film itself. Okay. So... From my understanding, it was not and is not common practice for documentary participants to be paid. Participants had signed standard release forms, which meant they weren't entitled to any payment legally. But Livingston herself acknowledged the moral imperative, saying, The journalistic ethics says you should not pay them. On the other hand, these people are giving us their lives. How do you put a price on that? In the end, after an initial round of lawsuits were dropped, including one from Paris Dupree for $40 million due to the name of the film being taken from the name of her 1986 book, Livingston distributed $55,000 to the principal performers based on their prominence in the film. On the Wikipedia article, it claims that this constituted one-fifth of the sale price of the film to Miramax, but as far as this Wikipedia sleuthing office can tell, the source <laughs> for this information has only ever been listed as a 1993 article from the New York Times titled Paris Has Burned. While the article is excellent, it does not mention that division. <laughs> That's pretty classic. <laughs> Wikipedia citations. <laughs> yeah, but that article will give us the source for some of the quotes that I'm about to say from various people involved in the documentary. It bears noting that Livingston claims these amounts and the idea of payment existed before the lawsuits. This is believable, like the payments were made in 1991, they weren't made three or four years later or anything like that. But I don't want it to go completely unchallenged because obviously it is like pretty convenient that a bunch of the stars launched lawsuits and then Jenny Livingston paid the money after yeah. those lawsuits were dropped. If she had planned to pay them before the lawsuits, it's clear that at least she didn't communicate that to them. Yeah. Which well, is, I don't know. 
It seems a little weird, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I'm just very not sure what I think about a lot of the like controversies around this documentary. Mm. And this is definitely one of them, partly because I really have very little sense for like the ethics involved in this type of media creation. Like obviously the idea of, hey, you should pay these people because you used their lives. Like that's, you know, I can see the moral imperative there. And like, mm. it makes sense that that's a question to me. But like you mentioned, for example, that the the journalistic ethic said, don't pay them. Mm. So like there's ethical reasons plausibly that it would do harm to pay them. Is that the suggestion there? Or just that it would like compromise the integrity of the documentary? Yeah, I think them. that's more okay. the idea. Yeah. Yeah. Is that it compromises um, the integrity of the content that you've filmed if you're promising payment to people. That seems less important to me. Yeah, I would tend to agree. Yeah. Like, I, I see why that's, like, a thing that needs to be taken under consideration, but I guess, like, presuming that everyone's aware, like, the general public is aware of the general arrangement there, that seems fine. Yeah. I guess also, like, so this film was unexpectedly successful obviously mm. and you mentioned it grossed four million dollars i think mm -hmm. so like i also just don't really understand where that money goes like yeah. how much does jenny have <laughs> yeah so this is something that hildebrand talks about in his book where jenny livingston has done interviews where mm. she talks about how people have claimed that she's like you know, living next to, oh, I want to say it was like Calvin Klein or like, okay, you know, yeah. <laughs> like living next to celebrities yeah. um, and like has this like mansion and mm -hmm. she's like, that's not true. I went from being months behind on my rent to paying my rent on time. Yeah. And Hildebrand is sort of like, yeah, there's no way she made anything approaching dynasty money. Mm -hmm. You know, if anyone got rich off of Paris's burning, it was Miramax, if that. Yeah. Because, yeah, like obviously the reason why I bring that up is having the people involved sign waivers saying that they won't be paid seems fine when you're assuming that this won't make that much money but then it does make money like obviously that changes the question yeah um yeah it is interesting like from what i've seen which is obviously much less than you've seen as mm -hmm. the person who did the research for this the criticism does seem to be directed at Livingston, not at like Miramax, for holding on to this money or like not paying them yeah, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Is that like a fair. Yeah, no, I think, that's, I think that's yeah. fair is that people, yeah, mostly were directing their ire at Livingston. But mm -hmm. that may also just be because, you know, she's kind of the point of contact yeah. between this I mean, She's a person as yeah. well, not a company, <laughs> which is easier to engage with. Yeah. Um, so who actually paid that 55 grand? Like, was it Livingston personally? Yes. Yeah, that okay. was Livingston. And I think there's one other person who okay. was like heavily involved in the film. Okay. Those two okay. made the payouts. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm. So I want to go back to something you said mm. a little bit earlier, which was you mentioned kind of communication mm. and the clarity thereof. Yeah. So beyond payment, the response does seem to have been largely positive. Albeit, there is some sense of like disconnect between the people in the community and the release of the film. So Pepe Labasia said in that 1993 New York Times article, I love the movie. I watch it more than often and I don't agree that it exploits us. Dorian Corey was similarly pleased in the same article saying I got to be a star. Mm. It's notable that Corey and Willie Ninja were the only two principal performers who did not attempt to sue for additional compensation. I expect Corey's age and experience with show business and Ninja's personal commercial success respectively contributed to those decisions. Mm -hmm. However, critic Bruce Benderson's article published during the film's initial release points out that at least one star, Octavia St. Laurent, was not made aware of the film's release and success until she began to be recognized on the street. Corey's quoted in the same article saying, The film is slowly becoming accessible by word of mouth, but not all the house children read newspapers, and well, mm. the film forum, where the initial run of the documentary was screened, isn't exactly on their list. Mm. It's certainly something that I need to remember to consider the different time this was happening in, mm. as someone who has only ever really existed when the internet does. And obviously, like, not everyone has the internet in their mm. home even today but like it does mean that things are very widely accessible in a way that they weren't back then and obviously that's contributed to this a great yeah deal. yeah definitely um, and yeah this sense of disconnect between the audience of the documentary and the community it centers on 
brings us pretty neatly to the broader critical debate that emerged following the release of the film. Mm-hmm. So I'll begin our kind of overview of the critical response with a 1991 review of Paris is Burning in a Minneapolis-based gay newspaper that articulates the way the film had a mixed reception from the very beginning, with reviewer Jenny Olsen saying, Jenny Livingston's film is being criticised from all sides for not providing viewers with a clear perspective from which to view it. Amid the variety of these critiques, it is striking that primary emphasis is most often placed on conjectures about how other people will interpret the film. Mm, yeah. Olsen clearly cared more about how individual queer people responded to the film than broader society, continuing... This emphasis seems a convenient strategy to avoid examining personal responses to or understanding of what is in many ways a very difficult to read film. I've seen it four times and I still don't know what to say about it except go. Hildebrand in his book kind of mounts a similar argument which Mm. we'll kind of get to towards the end of the episode Mm -hmm. but not everyone thought that way. Most notably and Eli I got you to read this article before we recorded this episode Mm -hmm. Bell Hooks published a 1992 article Is Paris Burning? And she was definitely someone who did think the response of mainstream audiences was important to analyzing the film. Hooks, who is an author, activist, feminist, like feminist black theorist. feminist thinker. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Who's quite famous, wrote in her article that the white folks in the audience were there because the film in no way interrogates whiteness. And she specifically thought the way the balls were presented reduced a black cultural ritual to mere spectacle, and argues that this is an error that white observers are almost inevitably going to make when portraying a community that they are not a member of. This critique is specifically focused on how the film commodifies the lives of black communities for white audiences, recounting that when she saw the film with another black woman in a predominantly white audience, we were disturbed by the extent to which white folks around us were entertained and pleasured by scenes we viewed as sad and sometimes tragic. Mm -hmm. This is, I think, a fair critique. The film juxtaposes scenes of laughter and merriment with those of hardship and tragedy, and I can definitely see how in a packed and raucous theatre, the latter would be overwhelmed by the response to the former. How did you feel about this aspect of the film, Eli? We both watched the film kind of alone in our home, which is definitely a very different viewing experience than mm. what Bell Hooks would have had yeah. back in the 90s. I would agree more with Jenny Olsen's line of thinking of, of not feeling particularly guided by the film and, like, we've noted before the lack of narration or of any kind of, like, I think clear constructed narrative of events or anything like that. You're just kind of presented with a lot of images on screen And it's up to you as the viewer to parse a meaning out of that. Or at least, like, that is the appearance of things, because obviously that's not really true. This isn't random found footage. This is something that's been edited together by someone with a very particular point of view on life, as Bell Hooks gets into. Yeah. I don't know. I think because of that ambiguity, it's very easy for audiences to kind of make into whatever kind of film they want. Yeah, so it almost goes without saying in 2020 that this film being made by a white filmmaker undoubtedly limits its perspective to some extent. Mm. Livingston was confronted on this fact at the time, and it has been in the 30 years since. Her responses have generally been focused on how the film couldn't have been made had it been helmed by someone from the scene, because it wouldn't have received funding or attention. Now, that might very well be true, but it doesn't really address the point. And Hooks hones in on this, saying her inability to interrogate her position as an outsider is rooted in the politics of race and racism. Mm. I certainly felt like that was fair. Where the film itself is somewhat ambiguous, Livingston's comments, as quoted by Hooks, aren't, I feel, and are much easier to parse a particular point of view out of. And, like, yeah, I felt that they were pretty, like, weak answers generally, as quoted by Hooks at least. Yeah, and uh, having read several articles where Mm -hmm. Livingston is interviewed both at the time and since, I don't really feel like she's developed a more nuanced response to that Mm -hmm. uh, in that time. And we'll get into kind of the modern legacy of the film uh, later on. Yeah, and I guess that in itself then reflects back on the film Mm. and its ambiguities and allows less room to view them as kind of like a purposeful decision by Livingston to say let the subjects of the film guide it and more just kind of like not really thinking it through well enough or being able to do so. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Hooks compares the documentary directly with Madonna's appropriation of ball culture in her 1990 music video for Vogue. 
But yeah, she also compares it to Patricia Williams' analysis of the voyeuristic way Harlem's Easter Sunday church services are viewed by white tourists. Mm. Talking about how this is, you know, an important piece of cultural life that's sort of being viewed performatively. Mm. So that's one side of Hook's article. And I think it's absolutely legitimate for a black critic to have issues with the way ball culture is portrayed by a white filmmaker. You know, I think you've already kind of given us some arguments as to sort of the nuance there. And, you know, we've talked a bit about kind of the difference between how a white audience will interpret it versus the importance it might have for individual queer people. But, you know, I think there's definitely a lot of interesting arguments that she's making in that respect. Mm. That said, I want to go into the other side of the article where Hooks talks about how she views ball culture and its participants. Mm -hmm. Because I think here is where... Some of her arguments, whilst there is still definitely some interesting stuff here, I think there's also some problematic stuff Mm -hmm. that I want to talk about. So Hooks is no less scathing towards the ball community itself than she was towards Livingston, pointing to how it idolizes white femininity and paints the balls as inherently patriarchal in the way that they have the aura of sports events, aggressive competitions, where participants are subject to the same objectifying phallic stare straight men direct at feminine women daily in public spaces. And I think that's a little unfair. Oh yeah, I think that's all complete nonsense, Yeah, I was going to say. So... So, Hooks opens her article talking about her own experiences with drag and gender performance and how men dressing as women has been regarded by society as crossing over from a realm of power into a realm of powerlessness. She goes on to talk about how many black male comedians performed in drag during their shows and how these performances often denigrated femininity and black femininity in particular. Hooks does softly articulate a difference between comedic drag and that done for performance as part of a community, acknowledging its subversive potential. However, she claims that in Paris is Burning, the idea of womanness and femininity is totally personified by whiteness. This is acknowledged in both the film and in Hooks' article by Dorian Corey, who points out in Paris is Burning how no queens back in her youth wanted to look like black movie star Lena Horne. And certainly many of the examples of beauty that the members of the community aspire to are white women, although I personally would argue that the This Is White America segment shows the ball scene pretty effectively satirizing rather than unquestioningly worshipping mm. the aesthetics of whiteness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like that kind of gets into a bit of a confusion I had with Hook's article where I felt it was unclear exactly what she was criticizing at like any given time. So she definitely does criticize the ball participants and she definitely does criticize Livingston but I think for like a lot of these comments she makes I was sort of unclear on if she was criticizing that culture inherently or the way it was depicted in the documentary and like certainly sometimes she just is criticizing that Mm. culture but yeah like I, I just don't feel like that's successfully delineated and therefore critiquing her critique is something that is a little difficult to do yeah definitely and I'll get into in a little bit kind of how it's somewhat unclear exactly what Hooks' views are on this community. Mm -hmm. But I think the way that Hooks frames that aspirational element of ball culture as working in concert with white patriarchy Mm. kind of points to how she sees this as a community as being comprised, if not exclusively, then at least primarily of men. Mm. She refers to the ball scene community as black gay brothers, black men, and black gay men repeatedly throughout the article. And the closest she gets to using she, her pronouns for a ball participant is when discussing Venus Extravaganza, who she refers to as him slash her. And I don't think you can blame Livingston for that. There's plenty of acknowledgement in Paris is Burning that many of the ball participants are trans women. And to be clear, I'm not saying Bell Hooks is a turf. In a 2014 discussion with actress Laverne Cox, she expressed respect and admiration for her. But she did repeat a very similar criticism to the one expressed in this article, that Cox's blonde wigs and high heels embrace a stereotypical femininity which feeds into the patriarchal gaze. And I think that shows a lack of understanding and empathy for those who are trans or gender nonconforming, the struggles they go through, and the careful ways they consider and construct their own presentation. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, but I think also that's a critique you have to make with more nuance than that about cis women as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah like, I, you know, I think that's a pretty basic feminist idea at this yeah. point, that just criticizing women for dressing in a way that is 
traditionally feminine traditionally is, feminine is bad yeah and i do think it's part of how books kind of focuses a lot on the response of broader society to the actions that women and queer people take women queer people african americans mm-hmm. as opposed to what those actions are doing for those people and how they're benefiting from the ways in which they present themselves mm. so yeah like are the queens idolizing white femininity or are they creating an alternate existence for themselves within a racist society where they're able to be represented and seen as desirable like certainly crystal labasia wasn't just idolizing white femininity when she stormed out of the miss all america camp beauty contest and created the ball scene that's depicted in paris is burning Mm. by founding a house yeah I i guess it's again kind of feeds back to how much is hooks critiquing the scene and how much is she critiquing a depiction of that scene that is not nuanced enough to encompass what it is and how much is she conscious of doing one or the other Well, like, obviously, like, the complicated and nuanced ways in which all of these people interact with all of the depictions that they're embodying briefly in the balls is is just not something that Livingston is able to fully explore. Mm. So I feel like it does give you this view of it that is less nuanced than it no doubt is in real life. Mm. And my response to that was just to kind of assume that these people were authorities on their own experiences and kind of probably had more thoughts about this than could be in this documentary. And I feel like to some degree, Hooks' response was like, that's shallow and therefore like these people are shallow. Yeah. And that's where I I mean, like I really don't know exactly like what layer of the process she's responding to. Yeah. So like, uh. Yeah, no, it, it is difficult. And, you know, in the end, I feel like Bell Hooks has a very specific black feminist lens through mm-hmm. which she analyzes Paris's burning. Mm. And while that perspective is interesting and certainly provides many legitimate criticisms of the production and consumption of the film, ultimately, she's not that much better place than Livingston to speak to how accurate and complete a vision of ball culture Paris is Burning presents, in my opinion. Hmm. Someone who perhaps is better placed to provide such a perspective is Marlon Bailey, an academic and former ball scene member who spent several years participating in and researching the ball culture of Detroit in the early 2000s. That's not to say that he was only around in the early 2000s. I think he'd been gay clubbing since the 70s or early 80s. So yeah, Bailey goes into quite a lot of detail about the house structures and the ways in which they operate as surrogate families for ball participants, a detail that gets some attention in Paris' burning and almost no attention from Bell Hooks when she describes the scene as hyper-masculine, mm-hmm. which is kind of where I felt like okay, I don't feel like Bell Hooks has a great understanding of ball culture, even as it's really presented in Paris is Burning. Mm -hmm. Because I didn't certainly come out of that film thinking that it was a hyper-masculine, super-aggressive environment. And certainly from having gone away and done a bunch more reading, that's not really the impression that I get. And that in terms of the history of how that specific ball culture evolved, it was kind of a response to a more aggressive, competitive environment. Mm. I know this is something you really took out of the film, Eli, the like kind of surrogate family element. Did you want to talk a bit more about that? I think that one of the reasons why this film is so valuable is because it gives us, you know, like however flawed, et cetera, et cetera, we've been talking for a while now about that, mm. look into like a piece of queer culture that isn't really presumably like that well documented, certainly not like comprehensively documented. Mm. And however poorly done that is, that I think is always a valuable thing to have. And I thought that was neat. Yeah. And, and like I was aware of houses, but I didn't know how how much they were sort of structured like a family with a mom and a dad. And it was a nice little through line through the back of this film to see that community. Yeah. And Bailey elaborates a lot more on the kind of house structure and how it kind of operates in day-to-day life mm-hmm. as opposed to just within the context of organizing and running and participating in balls. Mm-hmm. The houses are described in Paris is Burning as being like gay street gangs. And Bailey elaborates on this in his work, describing how they allow members to travel while openly displaying their sexuality or gender identity with relative safety, even in quite homophobic communities, backing each other up when assaulted. 
There's discussion of territory where after a certain stop on a train line, one has to express realness blending into heterosexual society. This aspect of realness as something that exists not just as a scoring system for ball competitions, but as a survival strategy for queer people of colour struggling to get by in a society that doesn't accept who they are, really hits hard, and I feel like the way Bailey draws this out in his writing really builds on the gestures towards that that we get in Paris is Burning, that maybe, you know, don't really go far enough in really explaining what these means for people's day-to-day lives. The other thing that we get more in Marlon Bailey's work is that he explains the complexities of the gender system that's implicit in the way several of the queens in Paris is Burning talk, but isn't really explained. And Bailey draws out the nuances between six gender identities that exist in addition to three sex identifiers of male, female, and intersex. So I'm going to go through this list of gender identities that exist in the ball scene. There are cis, gay, or bisexual men who don't perform in drag, who are butch queens. Cis, gay, or bi men who do do drag, butch queens up in drag. Trans women, femme queens. Trans men and masculine lesbians, butchers. And feminine cis women of any sexuality, who are referred to as women, and straight men, who are referred to as men or sometimes trade. All right. Um, So these categories exist both as a way for the community to kind of define themselves in a way that is, you know, obviously different to how mainstream society thinks about gender and sexuality but also as, you know, competitive categories for the balls themselves. Bailey explains that there is power disparity in these categories and the ways, for example, trans men compete alongside cis women in drag in ways that don't necessarily happen for trans women and cis men, but also points out that the nature of these categories is very fluid and, you know, they're kind of always evolving in response to the needs of that community. Okay. And he said in a 2011 essay, ultimately, in this queer minoritarian sphere, black gender and sexually marginalized people forge lives worth living. Other critiques asserting that ballroom members are obsessed with white femininity and illusions of material wealth discount the actual labor in which its members are constantly engaged to create an alternative existence for themselves within that marginality. The gender and sexual performativity of ballroom culture emerges and functions at the interstices of hegemony and transformation to create new forms of self-representation and social relations. I like how that was totally at hooks without... Yeah. Saying it was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, the, the obsessed with white femininity really gives it away. Yeah, that's like basically verbatim. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, though, yeah, I thought that was good. Mm. Yeah, and I, I found Bailey's writing really interesting. Mm. I didn't read all of Bailey's work. He's written an entire, like, several hundred page book about life in Detroit in the mm. ball culture, which. It sounds great. Sounds great, and the bits I did read were really interesting, so would recommend if you're Mm. looking for more reading about ball culture. So yeah, having talked a bit about kind of the critical response to Paris is Burning and you know, the community and the gender system and all of this stuff. I want to finish this bit before we start to talk about kind of the modern legacy Mm -hmm. of the film with another quote from Bailey, who says, For in the final analysis, ballroom members have to live in different worlds. One of these worlds imposes strict prescriptions of gender and sexual meaning and behavior. And as Jonathan David Jackson, another ball participant turned scholar, notes, The world of ballroom and its balls provide a space and occasion for community members to embrace their own gendered and sexual meanings more freely. So yeah, now let's talk a little bit about the kind of legacy that the film left behind after it was released. The increased attention paid to the ball scene obviously provided much of the impetus for the rise of figures like RuPaul, who first had a talk show in 1994, which was not something I was aware of. Oh, okay, sure. (laughs) I became aware of who RuPaul was when I watched, but I'm a cheerleader and there was clearly like some big deal about this minor character and I googled it and I was like oh okay (laughs) and since then I feel RuPaul has foisted himself upon me ever more with each year (laughs) I don't like it yeah I didn't know who RuPaul was until like maybe 2014 or something okay kind of assumed that he was a recent thing at that point no 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 no, no, yeah. (laughs) yeah we are a different type of gay than some Gays. Yeah. Who yeah. are probably like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, so obviously RuPaul continues to have cultural relevance to this day. 
The film continues to be responded to and recontextualized through documentaries such as Daniel Peddle's 2005 film The Aggressives, which focused more on transmasculine drag performers, and FX TV series Pose, a work of creative fiction heavily inspired by Paris is Burning and featuring several cameos from veterans of the ball and voguing scenes. Livingston herself directed one of the season two episodes and worked as a consultant for the series. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. And it kind of gets at some of the tension that remains over the lack of inclusion for queer and trans people of colour in discourse around the film. Mm. In a lot of the articles and interviews, it's Jenny Livingston who gets spoken to, not Mm. any of the people actually present in the film. And as recently as 2015, The Guardian reported that when Brooklyn non-profit Brick scheduled a special screening of the film on the 26th of June in Prospect Park, and it failed to include any trans and queer people of colour from New York's current ball community or performers from the film in their lineup. Well, it sort of speaks for itself, doesn't it? Yeah, and, like, obviously that's not Jenny Livingston's fault. Yeah. But... Well, it's not her fault, but, like, presuming that she was aware of this at some point before the day of, she could have used her considerable influence to change that yeah exactly that's kind of how i feel about that is that you know Mm. she's gone on to have this you know reasonably successful career as a documentary filmmaker Mm. you know i think that she could deal with the legacy of this film that she's made a little better than yeah especially like going back to that quote right at the start about i can't remember it exactly obviously but about how, like, she said that, you know, she made the film, but it was really, like, written by the people mm. in it, where she's kind of presenting herself as just, like, the medium through which these people were able to tell their own story. I guess you could keep doing that. Yeah. That's really what you view your role as. Yeah. And sort of uplift their voices a bit more. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel as well. Mm. So yeah, Paris is Burning is part of the new queer cinema movement we've spoken about previously on this podcast, alongside films such as Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. But Hildebrand argues that it was always the most inspiring and remains the most vital of those films, pointing to a screening by community organization Fierce, the fabulous independent educated rebels for community empowerment. Oh wow, they worked real hard on that one. They really did. (laughs) Um, Which is run for and by queer youth of colour in 2000. 2009 on Christopher Street Piers, where much of the film was shot, mm. uh, to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the Stonewall riots, as well as the comments of Bailey that the film continues to be the primary point of reference for members of the contemporary house and ball scene. So yeah, I think in the end, for whatever flaws Paris is Burning has in terms of having been made by a white filmmaker and potentially, you know, not presenting a full picture of the ball scene and its complexities. I do tend to side more with Hildebrand when he says that, you know, to him, what is important about the movie is how it was interpreted and seen by young queer people and Mm. how it continues to be interpreted and seen by young queer people, rather than how mainstream non-queer audiences reacted to it. Mm. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a lot about what people have said about this. Mm. And some of what people have said about this is, you know, talking about what other people have said about this and not the film, (laughs) etc. So I guess I wouldn't mind just having like a brief chat with you about the film (laughs) a little bit more directly and like a couple of key things in it that I wasn't really sure how I felt about and wouldn't mind just kind of like hashing out with you for a little while. As we've mentioned several times now, the film has this sort of like, I guess, we must interpret deliberate affectation of being kind of completely without a creator. Mm, Yeah, Um, yeah. Which, as again, we've gone into at some depth, is a bit of an ambivalent thing at best for a lot of people. And I I guess I just kind of like to talk about the effect of that on like a few key things. And Mm. if we think that it's ultimately for the better or worse in those instances, Yeah, sure. So, like, Bell Hooks had a few things that she was critical of, like a few parts of the film in particular, Mm. and she mentioned the way the death of Venus Extravaganza was framed, Mm. as well as basically, like, the narrow focus on the lives of the ball participants as it relates to the balls and not more widely. Yeah, yeah. So I guess sort of generally 
How do you feel Jenny Livingston's deliberate avoidance of being the narrator who is visibly directing the film on screen works? So like my kind of feelings are on the one hand, it seems prudent for her to do what she apparently thought like she was aiming to do, which is to let the people in it guide the action of the documentary such as it is. Mm. And on the other side, it seems like really disingenuous. And I guess like, yeah, do you have thoughts about that? Do you agree that it's just kind of both or? It's really tough because Mm. on the one hand, I don't think Jenny Livingston having a more active role in terms of, you know, providing narration or anything like that would help the documentary. Mm. I think especially in terms of its like long-term legacy. Yeah. I think part of why it has resonated and continues to resonate, you know, 30 years later is because people can kind of project themselves Mm. into this community. Mm -hmm. That said, yeah, I tend to agree that, and this is, you know, implicit in kind of Marlon Bailey's work Mm -hmm. where he's sort of digging more into what the lives of these people look like beyond the balls that they're competing Mm. in and why, therefore, the balls are structured the way that they are Mm. because it's in response to specific realities about how they live. And the film gets into that like a tiny bit where it talks about, you know, how some of the categories are about, you know, things that the ball participants themselves don't have access to. Mm. like The CEO kind of drag, which I thought was fun yeah like ceo <laughs> drag and like different like education yeah um kind of focused drag performances and things like that but i think yeah maybe there could have been a bit more done to kind of follow the ball participants in their day-to-day lives beyond just a few scant moments that mm. we do get but again you know i feel like that is probably reflective of the fact that that does seem to be more what she originally intended to do but then wasn't able to because of funding issues yeah perhaps the financial success of this doesn't really lead one to naturally think about it as a project that had to make financial considerations when it was being made Mm. and it obviously was not already Mm. grossing four million (laughs) dollars yeah yeah um Yeah, I don't know. I think the hypothetical documentary where she was able to follow, like, a few of them, say, around in the rest of their lives and, like, Hooks in particular is, like, well, why didn't we speak to their families and stuff like that? Mm. Like, I think there's a good documentary there. But I don't know if it's an inherently better documentary. I think it's just a different good documentary about all participants at some point. I tend to agree. I mean, it's notable that Books talks about how we don't really see their families, as you say. There's also the fact that we don't really see what they're doing for work. Um, Mm. We get, you know, some allusions to people doing sex work, for instance. But, you know, obviously, like, a lot of these people do have just kind of day-to-day jobs that aren't sex work or performance focused and it would have been i think interesting to see a bit yeah. more of that side of their lives yeah yeah i agree mm-hmm. um especially also like there was like real housing policy issues in new york at the time mm-hmm. so it would have been interesting to see more of kind of the way that they live i guess yeah yeah um, yeah yeah mm. and i guess that is kind of stuff that i don't necessarily think financial constraints precluded Mm. you know like you don't have to necessarily go to their jobs they can just tell you about their jobs yeah etc like it's not like it costs more for them to sit and talk to you about one thing than another thing like obviously it costs more for them to talk to you more Mm. Mm. and it'd be really interesting to know how representative a sample what actually makes it in is of all of the stuff that she Yeah, of the, like, 70 hours. Is that available anywhere, do you know? Like, is that in an archive somewhere? I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure. Mm. Because that'd be really interesting. Like, I think you could get a really good thesis. And as we know, Queer as Fact is just, like, a thesis suggestion project (laughs) Um, of watching all of it and kind of analyzing that compared to the final product. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe this has been done already. Yeah, I'm not sure. I do wonder if, you know, because, yeah, I feel like there is a pretty particular focus, uh, as I mentioned earlier, on kind of the trans feminine Mm -hmm. people uh, Mm. in the ball community. Yeah. I do wonder if there were more kind of trans masculine people or, you know, butch lesbians who Livingston spoke to, but then didn't Mm. include in the final Mm -hmm. cut. I'm not sure. So yeah, the other thing you wanted to talk about was the way the film frames the death of Venus Mm -hmm. Extravaganza. Yeah, I talked a bit earlier about how the film like contrasts tragedy and celebration constantly and obviously yeah that is probably the most 
I don't want to say egregious because that implies a kind of inherent negative connotation, mm. but it is the, the most, most stark mm. example where I was, even knowing that it was coming, mm. I was kind of a little surprised watching the film Yeah, when it just kind of happened. fairly flippantly happened. Yeah. On, uh, maybe flippantly. Yeah, I was going to say, again. but it, it, um, it certainly wasn't built up to in any of the ways that you might expect a documentary to do that. Yeah. Um, I actually found it quite good mm. how it was dealt with because I knew that there was like a prominent murder mm. that happened in this and I really dreaded watching it for that reason. Mm. And like I obviously I knew it was a documentary and not like a film so I didn't think we would see a murder mm. but I really thought it was going to be handled much more intensely than it was. Mm. Um, and like I personally don't feel that it's treated as, like, unimportant or without weight or anything like that, Mm. which I think is quite an achievement given that it is just sort of -of matter-of-factly said and then passed over. Yeah. Um, You know, I I wonder how important Venus was, how much of her was on screen before she died, like, Mm. in in the version of this documentary where she was not killed, Mm. you know, if she was as prominent as she was, you know, perhaps Mm. her prominence is because she was killed and... Yeah, it's it's hard to say. Yeah, obviously we don't know. Mm. But I could just kind of imagine a more overtly exploited documentary and obviously this doesn't necessarily get points for not being like the worst possible documentary (laughs) ever but like i've watched a lot of bad documentaries about trans people so i have a certain level of expectations Mm. and they're real low where you know it just used things like a shift in music and like a really somber dramatic tone Mm. to announce her death and i guess i liked that just someone close to her just said it happened and that was terrible yeah Um, i feel like the matter of factness also seems to kind of recognize that like this isn't something that is necessarily going to bring a community to a halt because in a community of trans people of color, obviously it's terrible, Mm. but it's hardly going to be a unique occurrence in their lives. Yeah. Maybe that's giving the film too much credit, Mm. but I, I tend to agree. And I think it's a pretty good example of where, you know, as Livingston said, the performers in the film kind of dictated to some extent Mm. the narrative structure of it Mm. the way that they talk about venus kind of lends itself to that kind of matter of factness and that you know reminiscing about the tragedy of the circumstances but also the the normality of it Mm. kind of the tragic normality really and you know this is something that's been talked about in several of the articles about the film since not just venus but also the fact that several of the other stars died Mm. in the years following the film's release and there's kind of a little bit of tension between how the film really is a story of success and survival but in the end many of the performers didn't survive that long after um, the release of the film you know whether that's due to aids or whether it was due to poverty or just you know other health issues that result from being a poor trans person of color mm-hmm. uh, in a community that marginalizes those identities mm-hmm. but yeah i i tend to agree that i think the film handled it pretty well i think it's again an instance where the fact that we watch this film by ourselves kind of, I feel, lets us pick up on those nuances mm. a bit better than maybe you would in a crowded theatre. Mm. You know, like, as Marshall McLuhan famously said, the medium is the message. And <laughs> it's interesting. It was something that I thought about after reading the Bell Hooks article and after kind of reading up on the critical response to this movie was just kind of how different it is to have like a small independent movie that's only really being shown at festivals when a community doesn't really have access to that. Mm. And I think about like, you know, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival that we've attended several times and gone to see films. It got cancelled mostly this year because of COVID. It did. I have a voucher for it (laughs) because all my showings got. Yeah. uh, Including, I'm going to put in a teaser, a documentary that I was going to see as a research for an episode that's going to come out next season. Well, I'll tell you what it is, but you can do research if you want, try and guess. <laughs> yeah, you can go and find the program for From the... Melbourne Queer Film Festival 2020 and go through and find all the documentaries and be like, which one of these would Eli do an episode on? <laughs> 
So yeah, I was just thinking about that and how, you know, for us, how accessible those films are and, you know, sort of discussion of those films Mm. are in a way that, yeah, wouldn't have been the case 30 Mm. years ago. So it is one that still routinely makes an appearance at queer film festivals and so Mm. forth. And I think that you and I, when the next Melbourne Queer Film Festival comes around or like whatever, Mm. and this film does get shown again, that we should go and see it in a cinema with a crowd. Yeah. And see what that vibe is like. Yeah, that would be really interesting. Yeah. Um, a little bit of a social experiment. Yeah. <laughs> and then maybe we'll, like, tell you about it in yeah. some form. I don't know. But we'll at least do a tweet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I, I think, like, if we see it in a cinema, it's probably going to be, like, for a queer audience. And that mm. doesn't preclude that queer audience at, like, Cinema Nova on a... <laughs> Ligon Street being like yuppie and white, obviously. Yeah. Which were Bell Hooks's complaints about the audience at she saw it with mm-hmm. but it's probably a bit of a different vibe and it would be interesting yeah i remember when we went and saw the miseducation of cameron post mm. which was part of the queer film festival i think i believe so yeah like i had in some ways a similar experience where the audience many of whom presumably were queer had a riot with that movie they thought it was hilarious and i was so uncomfortable for the duration of the film yes i was thinking about that when yeah. i was reading bell hook's article i'd actually forgotten that it mm. was that movie but yeah, I, was, yeah. I had this thought in the back of my head of i feel like this experience feels very familiar mm. and i couldn't think why but mm. yeah that's absolutely the um uh, film going experience i was thinking yeah of. and that was part of why we wanted to refer to the lost episode <laughs> we wanted to compare it to but i'm a cheerleader to mm. talk about like you know there are two films with very similar premises which are, are both about a lesbian teenager gets sent to a conversion camp Mm. and one is a comedy with RuPaul in it and one is like absolutely not Mm. even if audiences at least one audience kind of treated it as such yeah so like you know what makes one of these funny and what not yeah like how does that work and that's absolutely I think the case with Paris is Burning is Mm. because it is to some extent presented as a bit of a blank canvas Mm. you know to the extent that I do kind of support Jenny Livingston's decision to minimize her creative influence in terms of shaping the narrative of a community that she's not a part of it does allow for that interpretation and you know, if there's one thing that we've learned in the last like 25 years of cinema <laughs> in particular, it's that when you leave something open for interpretation, people will interpret it in ways that, you know, suit their own agenda. So with that, we've been Queer as Fiction. I'm Jason. And I'm Eli. And this is in fact our final episode for season five. However, we will be back sooner than December 1st. This is our 99th episode, and for our 100th episode, we'll be doing a Q&A. We haven't settled on a release date for it yet, but we're aiming to get it out sometime during November. It's up to Dan. <laughs> it is a little bit up to Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews and the restrictions that are placed upon us seeing and recording with Irene. Yeah. But please submit questions. How can you submit questions, you ask? You can do so via Twitter, Tumblr, or Facebook, where we are Queer as Fact. You can email us at queerasfact at gmail.com. Those are really the main methods by which you can submit questions. You could send us mail to our PO box that is listed on our website, but it probably won't arrive in time. No, especially during COVID. If you live in Melbourne, give it a go. Yeah, I guess so. That said, yes, we do have a website, as I mentioned earlier, queerasfact.com, where you can also find links to our Patreon and our Redbubble store, which are ways in which you can support this podcast. Another way to support this podcast that is not financial is that you can leave a review for our podcast, particularly on Apple Podcasts but also wherever podcasts are found, which is where this podcast can be found. Mm. Yeah, leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts especially really helps us reach a wider audience. Um, And it helps us do things like hit half a million downloads. Yes, it does. (laughs) We recently hit and we are so thankful and honoured that you all downloaded our podcasts 500,000 times. That's half a million. Mm. Yeah, since like four months into this project, I've been like, "Mm, I'd like a million downloads. And I'm being slowly vindicated. Yeah, and now it is within sight. It's going to (laughs) happen. If you do leave a review on Apple Podcasts, then we might read it out in our episodes. And Eli is going to read out a couple of reviews from our listeners now. Yeah. Okay, Jason, I'm going to give you a choice. Do you want a review from Canada or New Zealand? (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, I think New Zealand. Okay, our Kiwi brethren. So this review is from 
someone from New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Their name is Tyne, full stop. The full stop is part of the username. Yep. It is five stars and it is entitled Major Love. And they say, I've only recently discovered Queer as Fact, but I love it so much already. The topics are so interesting and delivered in a fun way. I've learned so much already and can't wait to binge more. Oh. Yes. If they binge more, they might have got us to a half million inadvertently. So thank you for your contribution to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. I hope you're like having a good time in New Zealand yeah. at the moment. Yeah. Um, hopefully we'll be in a bubble together soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We can come visit New Zealand. Yeah. Which I do genuinely want to do. Oh, me too. Yeah. Our other review is from Boozy33 from Canada and it's titled Everything I Need needed and it's also five stars and they say i came out as bi this summer despite being in a wonderful hetero relationship for 20 years and have been looking for ways to feel connected to my queerness this podcast for a quiet bookish history nerd has been everything i was looking for Listening to all of the colourful and not all horrible queer history, hearing the friendly hosts giggling and swooning over dogs and horses and monkeys has helped me feel like I have a place in the queer community. (laughs) The amount of research that goes into each episode is astounding, and as a Canadian, I always appreciate content that isn't American winky face. Oh no, we put them in an American episode. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for all that you do. Your impact on my life and surely many others is immeasurable. P.S. I could listen to Eli pronounce H-words all day long. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so a few non-serious points i love that the way that i say things and also the pet content has become the major takeaways that our audience has from these podcasts yep (laughs) but in reality like i don't know this isn't condescending but welcome to the queer community yeah um and congratulations on coming out that's such a huge milestone and we're so excited to have you and you absolutely do have community and we love you Hmm. also i love um, that they mentioned the monkeys yeah (laughs) there have been like a shockingly i feel disproportionate amount of monkeys (laughs) and i don't think that we have like a confirmation bias thing where monkey havers are more likely to like get episodes done on them because i don't feel we find out about the monkeys until we're already doing the episode yeah yeah. like we're not just like desperately searching for people who owned monkeys (laughs) and googling if they're queer (laughs) although that would be a fun way of uh determining what episodes we do i wonder how many monkey episodes in a row we can do before people are like what are you doing i wonder if we could do a monkey based patreon poll (laughs) i mean we could (laughs) oh yeah Cool. Well, Mm. thank you for reading those out, Eli. That's okay. Thank you to everyone who reviews us. I refresh it every day and very rarely are there new reviews, so thank you when there are. He really does. Yeah. I see this happen sometimes. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) We respectfully acknowledge the Yalakut Wheelam clan of the Boonwurrung. We pay our respect to their elders, past and present. We acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land upon which this podcast was recorded. So this is our last episode for the season. Season 6 of Queer as Fact will start on December 1st. And we could not possibly begin to tell you what the topic will be, so don't ask. (laughs) Hopefully we'll see you before that for our Q&A. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.